Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. Nick Wilson is a rabid record collector, occasional journalist and talented DJ who could comfortably be described as a music obsessive. Settling in London after a childhood of moving around Europe, Wilson's passion for hip-hop led him to London's emerging broken beat scene, but it wasn't until he made an unexpected move into house that Mr Beatnik really started to garner attention. Synthetes, which was released in 2011 on Don't Be Afraid, wedded his love for live and unquantized sounds to a classic house template and captured the minds of the genre's finest DJs. Fresh off a trilogy of increasingly adventurous EPs and playing out more regularly than ever, Wilson is currently at a career high. RA's Andrew Rice sat down with him in London recently to discuss his nomadic childhood, his formative experiences in London and his accidental move into house music. strike me as someone who's pretty obsessed with music in general. Uh, when did that start? How did I start? Well, I think it's like many people. I mean, it all goes back to your parents, doesn't it? And I was very lucky in that my parents were quite a strange blend of tastes and influences in that my dad collected quite a lot of, you know, let's say prog rock, psych rock, you know, kind of like classic um, 60s and 70s fair um, and didn't really listen to much, you know, soul or funk or anything like that. And my mum used to be a drama teacher, so she used to collect a lot of records that she felt were really good for sort of movement, teaching movement in classes. When I was growing up, it was quite normal to have, you know, mum and dad playing things like Jean-Michel Jarre um, from my mum's collection. And then my dad kind of playing things like Caravan or Gentle Giant or something along those lines. And it was quite, an, you know, as, as much as those two things are almost in opposition to each other, I felt like... I can see a kind of uh, a tangent that runs through both of them, and I think they, they were the, the, definitely some of the first records that I heard and fell in love with. I mean, I think it's quite normal that you start off going for your parents' collection until you've kind of exhausted everything in there. Um, and as well, mum and dad used to like be quite involved in the church and stuff, and they used to bring boxes of records back from church fates. So I used to, there was always these really good moments of saying to dad, like, oh, I can see that there seems to be a box of records downstairs. And he's like, yeah, they're the ones that weren't sold at the weekend. So feel free to have a look through them. And I remember, I think one of the most crucial records I pulled out of that crate was um, Diodato, first cuckoo, Umir Diodato, who produced Celebration for Cool and the Gang, who was really important arranger and um, 
in disco and funk um, and, and before that in Brazilian music. And I was really blown away by that record. I remember just flicking through it and, and finding it very puzzling. It was about, I think it's the sort of first, you know, let's say jazz fusion or fusion record I ever heard. And there's a cover version of Led Zeppelin, Black Dog on there that I knew from going through my dad's collection. He was a big Zepp fan. So that's really how things started in that kind of, with that sort of natural curiosity you have as a child, I guess. What was it about that record in particular? I think just, just there are so many um, tangents that run through that record that I think I, I reference now. You know, all of those kind of strings and the use of the Fender Rhodes. It's a very strange blend of instruments, but I, I don't know, it's just very lush and the orchestration. I've always been quite quite hooked on big string arrangements and that kind of counterpoint between really you know, delicate elements and really rich flowing elements. I guess it's just a very imaginative record. I don't even know, in retrospect, having not listened to it for a while, maybe it's not even one of his best, but it was just, to, I suppose, to the ears of a child, it just sounded really overwhelming. And, you know, the title first, Cuckoo, I mean, there's a sort of, there's a cuckoo type track on there as well, which I suppose stuck out to me because I quite like Birdsong as well. But yeah, I, that was probably my first dig, if you like, <laughs> or the first thing I came across that where I kind of understood, even before understanding what the terminology was and sort of digging culture, if you like, the, the sort of act of going through records, that was where the fascination kind of began, I'd say. Where did you go from there? Well, I think prior to that, I mean, I, I have a very fond memory of, I guess it was probably 1988 or 1989, at a time when you know, I would have been eight or nine years old, and dance music was kind of creeping into the UK charts and appearing on things like the now it's what I call music compilations, of which there was a, yeah, I, I think a lot of kids had them because a lot of parents bought them. They were very good tapes to play in the car. You get a set of four tapes and it'd have all the hits of the era. And uh, as these records sort of started to creep into the charts, you had things like Mars Pump Up the Volume, which had a brilliant, brilliant video that I remember blew me away. Um, it was a cut and paste video that used elements of some images taken from NASA stock footage, um, you know, some images of people dancing, break dancing, things like this. And I guess I kind of had my Herbie Hancock rocket moment to that video. And I remember kind of <laughs> every time it came on, because it was in the charts for a while, and they would often show the video on top of the pops. And just, I just remember being blown away by whatever this space music was. Um, and going back to the now, that's what I call music tapes again. I think they must have found it quite hard to compile them whilst Acid House was, was reaching its peak in, in the charts. <laughs> so they ended up putting most of the rave music on the end of the fourth cassette. Um, so you get an entire side of it after having to sit through things like Terence Trent Darby and Wet, 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 which was maybe a little bit less <laughs> less stimulating. And so, I don't know, you would... Um, We'd be in the car and Dad would flip the tape and then you'd get We Love Acid and Ebenezer Good... And these kind of tracks would come on. Um, I remember Massive Attack Symphony, uh, Unfinished Symphony was on there as well, or Unfinished Sympathy, I should say. So it was little things like that. That was the first time I heard dance music, I think, was in the back of the car off one of these tapes, or in the living room on top of the pops, and I was completely transfixed by it. I guess <clears throat> how that relates to what I do now, um, it was a much freer time, you know. The, the house and hip-hop were not... You know, we're not seen as being contrasting elements. Um, there was something that were washing together in this kind of melting pot, and I think I always approached dance music with that, with those ears. I didn't really sort of draw any 
distinctions between the genres. And I think I've tried to stay very true to that now. Um, I don't really see the need to yeah, compartmentalize everything and put everything into different into different groups. Um, I, I kind of, I guess I love that kind of um, chaotic blend that those records had and that sort of sense of fun and freedom. Um, maybe a kind of fun and freedom that people like Sex Tags Mania reference now. You know, it's, it's on that same kind of ideology um, of just, it should be about throwing a load of elements together in a mix and, and yeah, and just letting the listener pick, pick them out with their ears, I suppose. Um, I guess when I first heard of you, it was as a, a hip-hop person, a, a hip-hop head, if you will. Um, how did you get into hip-hop, I mean, aside from through dance music? Sure. Um, well, I mean, I'm not going to stay too fixated on these these tapes for too long, but yeah, there were a lot of tracks on there, like a Redhead Lint and the Kingpin and things like this. Um, I think the first rap record I got my dad to get me was Run DMC, Tougher Than Leather, um, and I used to play that a lot in the house. I can't really describe. I mean, you know, if you were if you were there in the summer of 1991, <laughs> sorry, that sounds really stupid. But you know, I'm thinking more like secondary school when we, you know, everyone was dancing around to um, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince "Summertime." I mean, hip hop was such a dominant force. Um, there was limited range of options if you were going to be into music as a teen at that time. Um, but I guess, like most people, I was into, you know, half the hip hop of the era. And then also the kind of Sonic Youth, um, pavement type, Dinosaur Junior type stuff, which we used to term skate rock for some reason. And I think skateboarding was quite important in all of this as well. I mean, a lot of the videos for both genres featured um, skateboarders and skating was very popular. We all used to skateboard. And and that was kind of how I got into it. It was music that we usually used to really share with friends as well. It was that kind of... You know, I mean, I don't sound too nostalgic, but before the internet came along, it was so hard to find things, and it was all based on peer recommendation. Um, and I do remember, like, being in the playground and, you know, friends coming over with their earphones and they have their, uh, they have their auto reverse Walkman, and they and you'd be like, "What are you listening to?" And they'd be like, "Have you heard of this Public Enemy?" And he'd be like, "No, Public Enemy. What, what, what's that? Yeah, this record. Um, yeah, Fear of a Black Planet. It's amazing. Check it out." And we used to listen to that stuff in the playground and just feel really blown away. Um, I have such fond memories of some listening to rap records back then, particularly ones where, you know, I'm having the cassette of 36 Chambers by The Woo and just having that playing round and round and round on the auto-reverse Walkman, <laughs> which was bright yellow. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't until for a few years until I began to draw the connections between Oh, okay. So they sampled this. They sampled that. My ear was always drawn to the, the, you know, the sampled fragments in those records. Whether it was Mars, whether it was, um, you know, Public Enemy, whether it was DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, and even to a certain extent, some of those rock records might have, you know, had sort of sample elements in them or referenced that kind of sampling. Definitely things like the Beastie Boys as well was hugely influential. I remember me and my friends, you know, we used to just pretend we were the Beastie Boys. We used to just rap along with the songs and act out all the dances from the videos. And, you know, and I think as well, um, at that time, Yo! and TV Raps had just started up. And it was such a formative program. You had to stay up really, really late to watch it. Because um, I think it was shown late for some reason. But um, the records they used to play, I mean, it used to just be this avalanche of amazing music. And had no idea who these people were. I mean, who was Heavy D and the boys? What was this Fab Five Freddy, you know? But it was just 
especially as a kid, I remember it just, you know, just sitting there and letting it wash over you and seeing all this imagery and all the fashions, um, you know, the Harry Hansen jackets, the Timberland boots, just thinking like, wow, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Um, and yeah, I used to just bathe, bathe in it. Um, and I think that's, I don't know, I can't really nail the first moment where I, I started experimenting with it, but I was quite lucky in that my parents, like I said, were quite into music. So we had, you know, and my dad especially is very into electronics. He used to build a lot of things. Um, he went to university and studied electronics and ended up working in audio and visual side of development. Um, so we had a lot of, you know, we had a, a Roland 202 in the loft, for example, <laughs> which was just there and no one had switched on for years. I think that was quite, you know, I was quite lucky in, in retrospect that we had these kind of things just knocking around. Um, I remember explaining to my dad, yeah, you know, so these records, basically what they're doing is they're taking a fragment out of something else and then they're sampling it out and looping it and then adding things onto that. How do you think I could do that? And he said, well, you know, um, you could probably try using a turntable to record onto another device. And, you know, he made various suggestions. And I can remember doing little experiments where using an Amiga computer and a very primitive sound card that was installed on it and a copy of a bit of software called Optimed, which only really came preloaded with barking cat and dog noises. So I bought barking dog, not barking cat. <laughs> um, and I can remember sort of taking fragments out of records in that way and then, and then trying to build sequences. Whether or not any of them were very successful, I'm not sure. Because <laughs> it was very, very difficult. And you, you only had a polyphony of three, you know. You could only have three sounds playing at the same time. <laughs> were some of those sounds cats and dogs? Yeah, I think I did a really great composition once. Well, I think my first composition probably was doorbell, cat and dog. Um, that were in, arranged in a sort of um, arrhythmical, <laughs> atonal composition. Um, I don't know, maybe if I still had that on tape, I could get signed to a really cool experimental label now. Um, but yeah, it was pretty rubbish. And I think it, it took absolute years to get anywhere um, with any of that stuff. And obviously the technology had to develop a lot as well because the tools were so primitive. Um, you know, I think... I don't think I actually managed to finish anything properly until maybe the late 90s when you finally had, you know, 386 computers with semi-decent sound cards and you had Cubase 1.10 and <laughs> you, you could actually sequence something. Um, but then all of this is happening in parallel to the fact that I used to play instruments and used to play in bands, you know, I was in a couple of rock bands, not particularly good ones. Um, I had, I did have that kind of experience as well because... You know, like I said, I mean, it was very hard to make computer music um, and it was not that hard to get some instruments together with your friends and, and jam. So I kind of had both sides going like that, I suppose. Uh, do you think that having experience in rock bands has an effect on the way you make computer music? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I used to all just play around with a lot of instruments. Um, <clears throat> my dad plays the guitar. He's a folk guitarist. You know, not a particularly good one, an amateur one, I'd say. <laughs> But, you know, he can play like Blackbird by the Beatles or something. And I think certainly having some musical instrumentation background, I never had, you know, like proper tuition or um, never really pursued it to any reasonable level. But I think certainly understanding about structures and chords and arrangements and, you know, melodies and things like that helps so much when you come to try to do a computer composition because, um, you know, all the best songs, no matter what the genre 
there are certain rules that they kind of certain structures that they respect you know and learning to form things in that way I mean I'm quite hooked on arrangements it's very important for me when I'm, when I write a piece of music that the arrangement flows properly and develops in a certain way um, and I yeah I think it's helped me a lot to kind of develop that um, and when did you first get beyond uh, the realm of the dog cat doorbell well I guess I gradually I fell in with some guys who were doing some production work um, who were a bit older than me and who were trying to get beats to rappers and you know kind of um, develop that as a business let's say you know they really they had that vision of becoming beat producers they really really helped me understand how rap records were made um, from, from sort of studying under them they had a studio I kind of learned from that how to do some engineering work I mean none of this was you know like proper professional stuff but I think that really helped. What was the first thing that I really... I didn't make my first record until about 2005, um, at which point I was living in London. Um, and, yeah, it was about 25, around there. I'd say that was from one from, drawn from a series of records, that, or a series of songs that I'd written with, with my friend, um, who's called Break Plus, who's another hip-hop guy. And we used to make these really lush, orchestrated um, sample compositions the first record I did with him was called Thieves of Time, um, and they, there was when we took fragments from thousands and thousands of records. If you listen to it now, you can kind of hear that it's not the sampling is not particularly deep, but the arrangements and the layering is quite, is quite complex. Um, and on the flip side, there's a there's a track called The Beat Suite, which is a three part uh, kind of medley, a bit like Double D and Stein's Key, the lesson tracks. Um, and we just we tried to have you know, we tried to make something that sounded like when you put the needle down, but there was a whole band playing, um, and you know, you were listening to an old record, but actually it was threads and threads and threads and sort of samples all stitched together into a big kind of fabric, um, and it was painstaking work. Uh, it drove us quite mental. I think it took us a couple of years to make it, um, but we still have, I still kind of have an unreleased album of all that kind of era of stuff. Um, with Lauren and we're hoping one day that we'll put it out maybe it's a bit of fun as a sort of um, you know from the archives type release um, but yeah I'd say that was probably the first time I kind of got beyond something that was just a bunch of sequence sounds and finally really nailed something um, and you said that was around the time you first moved to London I moved to London around um, 2002 something like that um, after I left university um, I was drawn here by a lot of different things, but I'd heard about Plastic People. I was hooked on, you know, I was, I'd was i heard a lot about this place called Plastic People that a lot of people were going on about. In the early 2000s, it was interesting because there were a few things going on that really caught my ear. I think Broken Beat um, and the co-op scene was, you know, a real pivotal time for me, um, especially in terms of opening my ears up to what the possibilities could be for a lot of the heritage I'm talking about with all this, you know, the jazz, funk, hip-hop sampling background and mixing that with that kind of free-spirited, you know, dance music element um, that I mentioned as well. You know, and, and going to co-op, I, I, I do, I clearly remember the first time I walked down the stairs into the old plastics with the old system. Um, it was completely pitch black in there from the front to the back. It was packed with people and everybody was dancing. Um, I mean, it was a time as well, you forget like what impact things like mobile phones on the dance floor have now, you know, like everyone has a smartphone and there are all these 
you know, lights glowing. Back then, it, it, it didn't exist, so everyone was just immersed in the dance. And I remember, you know, just dancing with people and feeling like there were no boundaries. You know, everyone was there to dance with everyone. How to put it, it's not, it wasn't even like flirtatious dancing. It was just like everyone was just dancing. And there was IG and Digo playing and Daz and Seiji. All the bugs kind of um, click, let's say. And the music they were playing just transfixed me. I mean, it just sounded really overwhelming. Um, I'd been on the Goya site at the time, Goya Distribution, which was up at Kensal Rise in West London. Um, and that, back then they had a sort of GeoCity-style website where they used to post up the, the new releases that week. And you'd go on there and you'd order a bunch of them. And, you know, bless Mike and all of those guys, but <laughs> um, they weren't always that great at mailing them out. So <laughs> it might take your order to get, it might take a while for your order to get to you. And I remember chatting to people and they said, well, you know, the best thing to do is you just go up to Goya and you see them in person and, you know, take a wadge of cash and they'll do a discount and you can just buy a bunch of new stuff off them. And they'll usually throw in some new promos. So I remember going up to, to, um, to Kensal Rise, to Goya Distribution, and having wander around the aisles there, and then walking out from a giant stack of records that was all, you know, brand new Digo, IG kind of stuff, um, Seiji, 2000 Black, um, oh yeah, and Domu, of course, and all that X-reinforced lot. So that was real a real ear-opening uh, experience, and I think that really, you know, that period of co-op for me, uh, let's say until about, the sort of time when I released my first record about 2005, 2006. Uh, that was just peerless. Um, I'd never experienced anything like that. The other thing that was interesting about Kensal Rise and that scene is, it, you know, upstairs, well, on the ground floor, you had Goya Distribution. In the basement, you had a network of studios. So you had the, all the Bugs Studio, Kaidi Studio, um, IG Studio. And then upstairs, there was Far Out Records, who are still there. Um, and a bunch of other labels. And I remember on an early visit to Goya, um, I think I bumped into Joe Davis in that building. And he was from far out. And I'd been buying a lot of their records at the time. And um, I said, oh, you know, I really like the label and stuff. I remember him inviting me into the office there. And we just hung out for a bit. And then he mentioned to me that he had some remix work going. And I played him a couple of tracks I was working on. Um, and he said, okay, great, you know, would you like to do some stuff with us? And I said, yeah, please. So um, he kind of gave me my first break. And I think that's when I started going by Mr. Beatnik as well. So another of my early releases around then was an, a remix of Azimuth, or Azimuche, I should say, is the chronic pronunciation, um, with the Peanut Butter Wolf remix on the flip. And I was a massive fan of Stone Show Records and, you know, all of that sort of area. So that was a real thrill to do that. Um, and I was also a huge fan of Azimuth, so it was yeah, that was a really great break. And I think from there, I just kind of kept developing that sound that I was working on, which was kind of a hip-hop-inflected um, sound, you know. I guess as well, that whole, you know, if you're talking about the time when you might have heard of me for the first the first time around, let's say, it was around that time when, you know, what we, what we sometimes term the beat scene was kicking off around the world. Um, and from my point of view, the first time I heard that music properly was on Andrew Mazer's show on BTS Radio. Um, and I loved his show. I thought it was amazing. Uh, all of those beats he was playing, the early Hudson Mohawk stuff, Flying Lotus. And, but, you know, there was a lot more artists as well that maybe have fallen under the radar um, 
all by the wayside. And what, what I liked as well about Andrew's show is that he was very hooked on Broken Beat and loved Digo and loved Seiji and all that stuff. And had, you know, had, had found the, the link between those two elements as well. And in a way I thought was really, really quite great and clever. And I think that's around the time where I met Ahu and we started working on this, I know all the bitches records, which is the one that I guess kind of got my name a bit out further out there after it got licensed on Alex Nutt's Rinse FM compilation. Um, yeah, I think that was, that was the sort of like the first minor hit, let's say. <laughs> I can't really call it a hit. I mean, it wasn't, it, it wasn't that big a success or anything like that, but certainly got my name out there. And, and I think also the fact that it had a bullion remix on there and everyone loved a bullion mix and the bullion mix got played all over the place. And that was really, really cool times, man. I mean, I remember meeting Paul White and Bullion for the first time and when they were the time they were, they were putting out those records. And I really liked the sound of all of that era. I really liked how people were experimenting with the sampling or trying to craft their own unique voices um, and I think I was doing, I was on that same path as well, but retrospectively, I don't know how interesting any of my music in that, in that field was. I mean, a lot of my newer stuff, I spend a lot more time playing, actually playing the sounds on it. And I think that's one of the big distinctions. I Know All The Bitches was, the, was one of the first times where I'd actually experimented with playing synth lines and, you know, playing with an arp string ensemble and, and some kit like that that I'd bought. But it wasn't until Synthetes and some of the more recent stuff where there's a, there is some sampling, but there's a lot more live playing. And I think that's really crucial to why it works or how it works. Um, whereas I was very heavily reliant on sampling back then. And I think sampling is a great way to get a texture on a record. But it's actually, I don't know, it's quite restrictive. Because a lot of the time you might be stuck in the same key for the whole song, you know. You might just have two loops that work really well together, but it could be really hard to develop them into an arrangement. Um, it, it's funny, too, because I find a lot of your work, it does have that kind of sampled feel to it. Like, it's it's very dynamic, but like on synthetes, for example, I wouldn't expect it to be played live. Yeah, I mean, but, but I mean, there's things like the bass line and the structure of that. And I guess also rhythmically, I don't always quantize everything. There's a lot of... Um, you know, live play in there. Um, I, I try to include as much groove and swing and natural feeling as I can in the records. And that's one area I've really tried to develop. And I think it's so crucial to, you know, to, to getting that, that feeling across. Um, I think the thing with house music is that, you know, there's a danger to become very restricted in the grid. You know, it's it's very easy to kind of get locked into these very sharp, edgy kind of pulses and these very restrictive grids and things like that. Um, and the, what I like trying to do is trying to subvert that and let's see, you know, let's see how much play we can get in this. Let's move things around a bit. Let's try to get some space and some feeling and some groove and some dynamic in there. Yeah, again, it's quite rare to find modern contemporary house records that have real sense of dynamics. They tend to be quite flat, you know. I mean, the, the only dynamic it probably has is a giant build-up halfway through <laughs> And I, I love that. I've always loved, you know, going back to those early years of collecting records or listening to records at my parents' house and stuff. I always love records that had that kind of dynamic flow to them, you know. Like a lot of those old prog and you know, maybe even the old jazz records and things like that. There's soft parts, there's loud parts, there's medium parts, there's a B section and a C section. It's that, that sense of arrangement, like the track is taking you somewhere. Um, and that's really one thing that I've, I've really tried to focus on when writing these newer records is, you know, getting from A to B, but going somewhere along the way, you know. 
Um, and you mentioned some deets, and I, I think that track, w- which was released a few few years ago on "Don't Be Afraid," really was a pretty big shift in your career in terms of style. Like the 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 sounds were the same, but the structure was totally different. Um, where did that come from? Yeah, I think that's. You're right. It's a complete shift, and it's it's the reason why I'm sitting to you, talking to you now. I guess um, the process that led up to the making of that. I mean. You know, I talked a, a little bit about w- what I felt were the golden years for me in terms of going out, you know, that, that plastic people scene and also later on the, that beat scene. But there was a time, I guess, you know, maybe towards the end of the noughties, looking back, do we call it the noughties? Or the, uh, <laughs> up and around about 2009, 2010, where I felt like I couldn't, I didn't quite know what I was into anymore, almost. Um, and I think it was because I felt like the beat thing had kind of started to chase its own tail a lot. There was a lot of repetition sonically. Um, I didn't feel that, you know, there was the story was really developing there. The co-op scene had you know, more or less you know, moved on or gone at that point. Um, you know, the party wasn't happening in the same way anymore. Um, I just felt, I guess, creatively, you know, a bit isolated, actually. Um, you know, the Goya Music had closed. I'd released a record on them and it had all gone tits up and <laughs> I never saw a penny for the you know, the record there. That's not I'm not having a go at Goya if they're listening to this, by the way. That's absolutely fine. I understand how it goes, you know. I was quite happy in a way that you know, hopefully my um, my money went to the liquidators or whatever. <laughs> but, <laughs> um but you know, I just felt like I guess I felt like a, creatively I was a bit herm- of a hermit at that point. I didn't, you know, in terms of finding parties to go out to, I was, you know, really struggling a bit there as well, you know, trying to find a new sound that caught my ear. Because I've always been one of those people that, you know, I've always loved kind of listening very broadly and I've always been really fascinated by new, you know, sounds as they came out. And, um, and yeah, and at that time I just kind of felt like, oh, okay, well, what am I going to make now? And I felt, like I said, I thought some of the hip hop stuff I was writing was okay, but it wasn't particularly challenging me. It, um, I was feeling a bit bored by making it, to be honest. And I was dabbling and playing around with, you know, sketching lots of different ideas. And I started to sketch songs that were running at faster tempos. Um, you know, some 130 stuff, some 140, some 120. Um, yeah, and Synthesis is one of the songs that came out of that period of, of writing. And I genuinely had, you know, I had absolutely no sense that it was going to find an audience one day or that someone was going to pick up on it. Um, but meanwhile, Benji and I from Don't Be Afraid, Semtech, um, had started to hang out quite a lot at that time. And we used to just have a laugh, you know, we were really enjoying going to parties and listening to music. And he was sort of going, oh, you know, you should come and listen to you know, X or Y techno DJ, or, you know, you'd enjoy this. Um, and kind of opening my ears a bit to some things that I wasn't familiar with. And I remember him coming around and I just played him a bunch of sketches off the computer. And we got to that one. And I mean, I just remember his jaw dropped and he was kind of like, this is brilliant, you know, he really, really, really seemed convinced that, you know, you should, you should pursue these. And I said, oh, you know, I'm just really enjoying writing them for me. Like I'm just having a lot of fun sketching around this area, you know, but I don't, you know, I don't really know if I'm a house DJ or whatever, you know, or I couldn't really even see people wanting to listen to it. And he said, no, you know, tell you what, let's put some of this stuff out. And, and so I finished it all off and he did. Um, and, what can I say? I mean, the, the response really blew us away, I think, because particularly because Don't Be Afraid was a very young label at that time. 
it was something that Ben had, had set up primarily to release his own work. Because um, I guess a bit like me, he, he, he maybe felt creatively in a bit of an isolated, you know, isolated space in that he couldn't quite find other people that were doing what he was interested in doing. Um, and so I came along and, and, um, and yeah, together we sort of, we started putting these records out and yeah, and I guess from there, I mean, it, we got a lot of really good feedback and then after D-Tron and then Jamie XX and all of these, you know, Paul Wolford, um, all of these big DJs started to play it. I was really blown away. Um, and then we got it, it started to get licensed on compilations and yeah, I, I, I just thought it was terrific. I was really thrilled that, that these DJs who, you know, I knew were, were very into proper house and techno and stuff like this, were interested in playing a fringe record by someone from London who wasn't really connected into any scene. It wasn't really like a sort of a proper house person in the first place, you know. Even Scuba, I mean, Scuba licensed um, Don't Walk Away From My Love on, on his DJ Kicks compilation. Yeah, all of that was, it was it was wonderful for me. I just, it made me, I guess more than anything, it showed me that the, the really big DJs out there are always listening. They've always got their ears open. And it doesn't matter where that record comes from. If it's if it works in their set, um, they, it's something they can play. Um, and I think I've tried to adopt that now as well, you know, as much as possible. You have to listen as broadly as you can. You can't overlook anything because it could... That's the way you find those fringe records that are really interesting, really can change the set. So do you listen to house music now? Well, I've got to be a bit careful about um, what I say about house music because, you know, truthfully, I've always bought house records. Um, I maybe didn't see them as house records, but I remember, you know, things like... Um, well, okay, I remember buying jo Joe Smooth, Promised Land, 12, from the same shop that I bought a Andy Bay record from, for example. I remember just loving that kind of soulful, uplifting quality to it. Um, you know, just the, the message, that sort of utopian message... That's what I like. That's what I would call house music, really, I think. It's something that's really soulful and uplifting and has a great groove that's kind of drawn from, you know, boogie and disco and all of that great old stuff. That's what I see as being house, it to me. Uh, and I guess house of the genre is maybe something else, isn't it? House of the genre is that thing where you get sent promos all the time and they it tends to be the same set of stock sounds. And it tends to be, you know, the same kind of progression through every track. And as much as it might have this joint build up halfway through, it maybe doesn't want make you want to put your hands in the air. You know, um, <laughs> that's, I think they're two they're two quite contrasting things, aren't they? Um, and so yeah, I to answer your question, yeah, absolutely. I listen very very broadly, and I have to I have to emphasize that. And I also don't want to sound like I'm denigrating you know all the great people out there who make quality you know full form music or whatever style but you know really the only things I'm actually that focused on is if it's got that kind of sense of intensity um, in, in the music that sense of sort of you know joy or you know a utopian sense or you know something really soulful really personal you know look at that like Larry Heard Missing You track something like that you know sonically it's so so unique it's got those beautiful kind of seagull sounds that he plays off a wave station or something and really lush, rich strings. And, you know, it's almost got like a kind of a double bass line to it. Now, I suppose in the record shop that goes in the house section, but to me, that's just a really, really great kind of soulful, um, unique composition. Just really, really something, just a great piece of music on any level. 
and that's what I'm really interested in. in I'm really interested in, in buying records that don't sound like other records I've already got. That's the bottom line. <laughs> After the 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 first EP on Don't Be Afraid, you released two more, and you called it a trilogy. Um, did you make those tracks all at the same time, or did you make them as the EPs were released? It's it's kind of a mix. I mean, really, the way it works for me in the studio, I've got a lot of hardware and equipment sitting around. And I've, I've got the same hard drive there. I probably shouldn't say this because everyone at home is going to be going, oh, dude, you need to back up all of your stuff properly. But I've got the same hard drive there that's been sat there for years and years. So I've literally got every idea I've ever written on the same hard drive. And the folders go back through the years, you know, all the way back to 1999 or something. Um, and it's, so in that sense, there are loads of ideas in there. And all sorts of tempos as well and the way I kind of do it is you know especially with the synthetes record there were there were ideas that had been in gestation there for let's say 10 years or something just like little hooks or ideas I've, I've been kicking around um, and so really some of them are you know I might have just taken a fragment of an old track and or an old idea I'd had and then and reworked it completely and rewritten new parts for it and then there are others like I mean, let's take Sun Goddess, for example. I think the uh, the A-side, Sun Goddess, is just written kind of in one or two takes. It really is a straight-off-the-machines kind of jam, just playing all the, all the sounds live. Um, and I think I'd, do, I'd done that, yeah, shortly after Synthetes. But then shifting sounds on there is a completely fresh composition that I'd done, you know, a month before the record came out, and I just sat there and kind of banged out all the, ta the sounds in real time. Um, there's a lot of live percussion sounds or triggering drum machines live on, on shifting sounds. So, but I think in terms of creating an arc there, and the reason why it's sort of terming, I term it the trilogy is because after the first one was released and, you know, I, can't, I, th I feel like some of the energy from that went into then writing the second. And then when I came to write the third, I'd wanted, I, I was then reflecting back on the previous two so in a way that they they all kind of interact a bit with each other. I'd say Savannah was definitely, all the stuff on Savannah was all written um, tail end of last year, start of this year. So that's some of the, the freshest stuff I've written. And that maybe is also why it doesn't really sound much like the other two. I mean, you can kind of hear the palettes changed a bit there. Um, I bought some new equipment, a few things broke. My Cork Poly 800, which I used all over, um, Sunglasses has exploded one day so I had to buy something else to replace it um, and yeah and also I, I kind of with Savannah I wanted to do something a bit different because I was kind of aware that if I did exactly the same thing as, I, as I'd done on the previous two I would just wouldn't I wouldn't really be challenging myself so that's why the tempos are more varied on um, on Savannah and you can start to hear some other some other influences there as well like some jungle inferences, hardcore, techno. I just wanted to broaden up the palette a bit and start to incorporate other things that I'd, I'd collected over the years that I liked. I mean, I loved old jungle and hardcore stuff. I was a little bit too young to really experience it properly, but um, I used to get a lot of hardcore tapes off my friends. I remember like this DJSS tape I had, one of the ones where he does that V, 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 I, 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 P, 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 dub, 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 play, you know, that, that black label track is on there and um, some old DJ, DJSS stuff of the era. Um, and so, yeah, so I kind of wanted to reference some of that sort of those sounds in it. I feel like with all of them, the palette, the palette of sounds I use 
it's trying to reference a lot of things I was into in my youth as well. Um, or, you know, it's like a real reflection of my, my favourite records. So I guess as uh, Synthetes and Sun Goddess reference different kinds of soul and disco and library stuff. Um, Savannah references a lot more kind of modern, more contemporary influences, maybe. Um, what's next after the trilogy? Well, actually, um, what we're going to do now is we, we were thinking because recently there's been a lot more people kind of getting into the records and discovering them. Um, and it's been a kind of organic process in that way. Um, and I'm getting a lot of emails and requests from people saying that they would love to get some of the older ones now that are out of print. So I think what we're going to do is we're going to do a, we're going to consolidate the whole Synthetes trilogy into um, a CD, with like a limited edition CD, with some bonus material that I, I really wanted to put out at the time, but which was always a little bit weird to press on a record. So there'll be some bonus tracks there that make it exclusive to that. Um, and then I think we're going to repress, because um, Synthetes and Sungodess were pressed in quite limited copy numbers um, so we're going to repress those to the people that have always wanted synthes and have never managed to get it um, and then from the from now on um, I'm working on a whole batch of new material and I think what's going to happen is I'm going to start to broaden the labels that I release on because I think don't be afraid has been really really great to incubate this phase of work but at the same time I've had a few offers outside of that um, over the last couple of years and I really would like to yeah, I just think it would be fun to kind of broaden it and it would also maybe allow me to to, to, to experiment in a few different directions um, before maybe returning to Don't Be Afraid later on with a, a new phase of work. But I think I, I'm also kind of aware that I'm writing in quite a free-form way now. I think Savannah kind of work was the start of that because as, as I was writing that record, I was like I said, I was aware that I didn't want to kind of retrace my steps too much and I wanted to kind of push the, the palette of sounds forward a bit. Um, and you know, it's, I'm finding it very hard to sit there and make something that is house, if you like, um, you know, with just a, a straight kick drum or something. Like by the time I got to Blue Dream on the Savannah EP, I was, I felt like I was getting more drawn towards, you know, experimenting with different kick patterns and different textures and stuff. So um, yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. Would you go back to making uh, hip hop and broken beat stuff, or is that just kind of off the table? It's funny, I, th I think, especially at the moment, with the the kind of hip-hop that's out there, a lot of this, I don't want to use the T word, but let's call it like 130 triplet hip-hop, yeah? We're, we're allowed to say trap. <laughs> yeah, whatever that, that stuff is. I'm not going to say that word. Um, or the drill music, I'll have to say drill, drill's fine. I think it's really interesting the you know how the range of sounds has changed in hip-hop now. Like especially with that Yeezus album that we were kind of talking about off off mic, let's say, yeah, the the stuff you're allowed to do in in mainstream rap now seems to be fundamentally different to what it ever used to be. So I think the irony is I'd probably be more up for making rap music now than ever before, actually, because you know? <laughs> it feels like you could just get all this kind of crazy stuff in there that you weren't allowed to before, like industrial and new wave, and you know the tempos all over the place. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been having quite a lot of fun writing slower tempo stuff recently. Uh, and you're also a music journalist. Uh, do you feel any conflict being involved in that world and also being an artist making music? I think, yeah. I mean, well, I don't know if it's really conflict. Um, certainly recently I've, I've sort of 
quieting down the amount of writing and things like that I was doing, just because I think that it maybe confuses other people um, more than it confuses me. I mean, to be honest, I never really went out to, to, to write about music. It was something that I fell into very organically. Um, you know, people just... I think particularly, like, just because I was always quite into records, people used to bump into me in record shops. I fell into, you know, writing for a couple of places. Um, and yeah, I've always really enjoyed it, to be honest. Um, I don't I don't feel personally conflicted because I feel like it's two, two facets of the same side of me, if you know what I mean. Um, but yeah, I think as soon as you start, you know, especially recently, you know, now I've been DJing more and... You know, the records have kind of been getting out to a wider audience. It does seem to confuse people a bit if I do too much writing. So um, that's the main reason I'm going to knock, knock that on the head, I think. As someone who's not really a fan of Formulaic House, um, or as, as you put it, how do you approach your DJ sets? Interesting question. Um, yeah, I mean, this is more something that's been on my mind recently, I'd say. Because, like I said, you know, recently started to DJ a bit more, started to play on proper bills, get, you know you know experience a very new world of you know where people genuinely would like to hear me play records for two hours you know in a dance floor capacity and you know you can kind of sit stand there and play two hours of strike four four kick drum if you want but i do feel a little bit like i well to be honest i get a little bit bored if i just play the same thing all night so what i'm doing now is i'm trying to structure sets trying to see you know rather like in the same way that the records are trying to fit a really broad base of influences into a kind of house template, I also want you know the sets to be to reflect more more broadly what I'm into rather than just it being just straightforward for for, for two hours. Or, well, sorry, I should I'm getting really fixated on the kick drum. It's not about the four four kick drum. I'm just saying, you know, rather than just play very methodical, very banging, very straight edged um, house music. It's not really something I'm, I'm that into. But with the sonar set, um, that seems to have gone down really well with a lot of people. Um, that was fun because I wanted to play some of the more interesting, you know, left to center house records that I've been buying. And I also wanted to try to reflect some of the more interesting things that are going on more widely. You know, I really love all the Duke footwork stuff. I really love all the, these kind of, you know, grime garage mutations that play, people like Hyperdub put out. And to me, it's sort of like if you're up there DJing and you're not representing this stuff, um, you're not, you know, you're not bringing it to a broad audience. You're not allowing people to hear it, you know. And as DJs, we've all got to kind of be like, you know, it's rather like the playground I referenced earlier. You know, you're giving a peer recommendation. You're playing people some music. And certainly, when I used to go out and see DJs, or as I still do, you know, I'm always more fascinated and compelled by people that play a bit more broadly. I want to set the records a bit straight on what I was saying about house music, by the way. I think it's a really, really brilliant time in that there are some really interesting artists who are doing, you know, in the same way that I'm, I'm interested in trying to take that you know, template and play around with it. I think there's a really interesting movement going on around the world now where there's a lot of people doing that as well. Um, you know, and we've got to, got to give a shout out to people like Lies or Maximilian Dunbar or you know people that uh, white materials like galka loose work um you know those are the kind of oh yeah obviously carl hall funkin even all those guys to me that all of that 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 sort of music is what i'm more interested in in, in terms of house that we were trying to talk about before because i guess all of those people are, are all into much broader things than you know just just house music um and then and you can hear it in the way they bring the influences in mm -hmm.